has anyone ever taught you how to pray? A question, has anyone ever taught you in your life how to pray? A prayer is often, like many things, caught as much as intentionally taught. But the disciples had an incredible ability and a boldness to be able to ask direct questions. It's a, it's, it can give us anxiety in our lives. I know it does me to ask somebody just a direct question, pulling out either for them to pull and to pour into me uh, or ultimately to, to try and change their course of actions. Direct questions can be intimidating. In Jesus' teaching, he gives teachings in many different places. So it's not like he had one sermon and that was it, the only time he would give it. And one of these occasions where we see Jesus repeating his teaching is the Sermon on the Mount. He gives the teaching and he teaches us how to pray. The Lord's Prayer, you probably learned it if you grew up in the church. You might have heard it as a child. Our Father who art in heaven. All right, yeah, I was going to see where that would go if you would just start saying that, but I'm not going to put that on you because if you don't know it, you'll be like, I'm the only person and I'll have to move my lips like I know it so I won't feel uncomfortable here. Uh, but the Lord's Prayer is, is, is what we've heard many times. And in, Acts, or in, in Luke chapter 11 is one of those other occasions where Jesus, he teaches them again. He teaches his disciples how to pray. And in that scene, it's, it's begun, this discussion, this teaching of prayer begins because one of his, his disciples, an unnamed disciple, perhaps either to keep him from embarrassment of something he would have heard earlier, uh, comes to him and, and asks Jesus, Jesus, would you teach us to pray like John the Baptist has taught his disciples how to pray? And in that scene, then Jesus, in response to being asked, will you teach us how to pray, he gives again uh, what he teaches in Matthew chapter 6, earlier on, on the Sermon on the Mount. He teaches them how to pray this prayer. So in our letter this morning, Psalm 119, as we walk through this letter together uh, of Kuf this morning, we see many similarities between what Jesus teaches us in how to pray and how the psalmist prays. And what we're going to notice is four particular commonalities that I would pray would seep more into our lives in this little prayer that we learn to pray, many of us as little children. And Jesus taught his disciples in teaching them how to pray. And what we see with Scripture again and again and again is that the essentials of the faith, the disciplines of the faith, are, 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 are soft enough and light enough to be able to, to carry for a child and to memorize and to walk out as a child. And they're deep enough and they're strong enough to anchor us as adults for every season of life that the Lord may bring us to to walk through. So if you have your Bibles, open with me to Psalm 119, verse 145 through 152, as we notice these four particular similarities between the psalmist's prayer here and Jesus' prayer and teaching and, and the Lord's prayer in Matthew chapter 6. Again, that the Lord would ingrain this more into my life, that I would become more passionate and, and desirous and, and personal in my prayer life as a confession to you. And that as a church family, this would begin to become more and more representative of how we pray because Jesus has taught us how to pray. So I've phrased each of these in the form of a request as the disciple, the unnamed disciple, went and asked Jesus in Luke 11, but which mimics the more familiar passage for us in Matthew 6. So let's begin first and foremost. Lord, would you teach us to pray hollow-heartedly? And you'll notice in our notes, I've, I've, I've outlined there our text, 145, 146, and then also Matthew 6, 9. And I'll read those. You can stay in the Psalm 119 text. It'll be easier for you to do that. But I'll also read that Matthew text for us. So first we ask, Lord, would you teach us to pray hollow-heartedly? 
hollow, this word for to honor is holy. It's what hollow means, to honor as holy. So let me read that for us. Verse 145 and 146. If you don't have a Bible, follow along in the Pewback Bible in front of us. We would love that. The psalmist writes and he says, With my whole heart I cry, Answer me, O Lord, the personal name of God, Yahweh. I will keep your statutes. I call to you, save me, that I may observe your testimonies. In Matthew 6, 9, Jesus says it like this, Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. And in, in, in the Lord's Prayer, the name of the Lord, God's name, Yahweh, is, is personal and it's meant to be feared, revered, honored, respected, is holy, set apart as holy. So that word hallowed is, is His holy name, worthy of fear and respect. And, and we've talked about this before, but remember when it says the name of the Lord or in Acts when they're baptizing in the name of Jesus as representative of the full Godhead, Father, Son, and Spirit, but the name represents authority or power. So, for example, our nation, if we sent somebody as an ambassador of the United States, they'd say, whose name do you come in? Right? I, I come in the name of the United States of America. Or more simple, for children, we would say, who told you to do that? Mom said, I could do this, right? You're evoking the name of your mom uh, to pull across a power play on your siblings. Maybe you did that when you were a kid. Maybe you didn't. I'm not going to judge you for it, but you know you did it, okay? We, we call the name the authority point of a parent. And that's what the psalmist does here for us, and that's what Jesus teaches us. Pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. His name represents exactly who he is. And then that's why in Psalm 30, verse 4, he says, give thanks to his holy name. His name is who he is. They're not distinct, not different. It's his authority, his power. And so when we say, Lord, would you teach us to pray hollow-heartedly, what we're asking is, God, would you teach us to pray accurately? Would you teach me, Lord, to, to pray accurately, to know you accurately? So, so words matter. Would you teach us to pray accurately? If we took a bonfire and we had described the bonfire as, as cool and chilly, cold, accuracy, that, that, that mistake could, could get us hurt, especially if we, if we meant it literally and we acted consistently with what we said. And if others heard you and trusted you and you described the bonfire as, as cold, they would be severely injured and damaged and burned. And so too with the holy name of the Lord, so much more worthy of our fear and, and reverence and, and to be treated truly as holy. Then even a bonfire ought to be feared or respected. The psalmist speaks accurately about the Lord, and so too we're to speak accurately of the Lord as teach, Jesus teaches us to pray. The psalmist says, Lord, with my whole heart, with my whole heart, he knows the Lord accurately. He calls him by his name. With my whole heart I cry, answer me, O Lord. So if he's filling out a letter, he knows the address to whom he's addressing. He knows the one he's speaking to. He knows the one he's writing to. He knows him personally. In Acts chapter 17, the Athenians, they set up this idol. Do you remember? This, this little altar to the unknown God. They're just shotgunning, they're scattershotting out the picture of, in case we don't really know who you are, here you go, and we'll make an offering to you out there. Even in our culture a little bit, we see that happen in times of tragedy. And we'll say, send your, 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 your prayers and your thoughts or your good vibes. You see that on a regular basis. Send your good vibes. 
And I don't mean that in a mocking way, but I don't know how you do that, okay? I, I guess I just did that in a mocking way. Like, do you reach your hands out? Do you send your, send your vibes out? What's that mean? I'm very, very seriously, what does that mean? And, and, and we know it's meant as a positive thing. It's not meant in an insulting thing. It's saying give your positive thoughts, but what does that mean? To give your positive thoughts to somebody in a time of need or crisis while you're in your house and they're in their house or their situation, and you're sending your positive vibes, your positive thoughts, what a, what a desperate cry of the heart that desires for things to improve but does not know the one to whom can actually improve them. The psalmist speaks hollow-heartedly. He knows the Holy One. He knows Him. And, and you and I in Christ, we, we know Him. We don't have to scatter shot. We don't have to throw a prayer out, hoping, hoping it gets to Him somehow. We know Him. You can know him. If you don't know him like that, you can know him. And we're to know him accurately and, and exactly who he is. Teach us to pray hollow-heartedly. It's a request for accuracy. The hollowed one desires his people to do what? To walk in his ways. Because the psalmist knows the Lord, who has revealed himself to us by his word, he knows that while he waits... While he's in this difficult situation in his life, that may be the end of his life, he knows what he's supposed to do. You see what he said? Look at the very end of each of those verses, 145 and 146. He says, with my whole heart I cry, answer me, O Lord. And what's he going to do while he waits? I will keep your statutes. 146, I call to you, save me, that I may, what? Observe your testimonies. Because the psalmist knows the Lord by his word, he knows how he's supposed to live. When we say we're to pray, Lord, teach us to pray hollow-heartedly. Teach us to pray as though you are holy and to be revered. We're also saying, Lord, would you help me to live with a desire to look like you? Would you help me to live a holy life? Would you help me to live as though I believe you are to be revered? And so he says, help me to live in line with your word. I want to keep your word. I want to keep your way. A quick point on that. Now, we've spoken about this a little bit, but not in this much detail. And, and so many of these sections, so many of these letters, remember Psalm 119 is, is the Hebrew alphabet, letter by letter with eight poetic verses, the first letter beginning with each of those, and, and many of the rest of that verse having a, a poetic match to it in the Hebrew. And in many of those, he speaks of the ways he speaks of the ways, plural, in the world, and the way, singular, of the way of the Lord. Now, with that word would be the idea that we have for, you've heard it, Torah. We've talked about that, the teaching of the Lord. We might think of the law of the Lord, the first five books of the Bible, the teaching, the way of the Lord. And it would be associated in our minds with the same way that he reflects the last part of every one of these verses in Psalm 119, almost every one. You remember? We just read it. He gives a statement, and then he says, I want to keep your way. I want to keep your word, your rule, your precepts, your testimonies, your teachings. The way of the Lord would be for the Israelite, the Torah. It would be a way of life. So catch this. If you asked an Israelite in the first century as Jesus is there, what's the way of life? How are we to live? They would say, by the Torah. 
We live by the Torah. We live by the Word. And when Jesus comes on the scene, he says, you're right. I'm the Torah. I'm the way. So you'll walk after the Lord by faith after me. You see how shocking and incredible that is as we, as we discuss this series. It's called, not by bread alone, but by every word of God. Jesus takes the ways of the world, and, and, the, and the Israelite would look totally distinct from the ways of the world as they would build their life and how they live and what they do according to the word of God, the scriptures, the Torah, the teachings of the Lord. And Jesus comes on the scene and says, you're right, but I'm the way. I'm the Torah. I'm the teaching of God. I'll keep the demands. You come to me by faith and follow after me. Abide in me. You see how incredible this is. This is a mind-blowing chapter when we see what Jesus is going to do with it. So we're going to walk in, if you're wondering where we're going, and when we finish Psalm 119, we're going to Malachi for a few weeks. We're going to finish that book out. And then when we come into the new year, we're going to begin the Gospel of John. And all these little Easter eggs we're seeing all through Psalm 119, Jesus comes on the scene, and it's... Oh, look what he's doing with this. Look what he's doing with the bread of life. So we pray, Lord, teach us, teach us to pray hollow-heartedly. Secondly, 147 and 148, and then Matthew 6, 11. Teach us to prioritize, our, prioritize prayer in our daily schedule. Teach us to prioritize prayer in our daily schedule. 147, 148. The psalmist says, I rise before dawn and cry for help. I hope in your words. My eyes are awake before the watches of the night, that I may meditate on your promise. Matthew 6.11, Jesus says this, give us this day our daily bread. So as, as Jesus teaches us how to pray, seeking the Lord daily for our daily bread. And it presumes in our lives that we're seeking after the Lord even before the essentials of our day are given, our daily bread. Jesus presumes in his prayer, give us this day our daily bread, that we're seeking the Lord before we've had our daily bread. It's a priority of our life before the priorities of our daily lives take over our days. Have you heard this, the statement, if you don't control your schedule, your schedule will control you? Have you ever heard that statement? If you don't control your schedule, your calendar, your calendar will control you. The psalmist, as Jesus depicts, is this prayer teach us how to prioritize prayer in our daily schedules. And this is a, is a humble childlike dependency upon the Lord to provide for us in our daily lives. So the Lord alone is self-sustaining. Here might be a new word you're, you're not familiar with, aseity. This is talking about the theological word, the aseity of God. You can write it down, A S C. E-I-T-Y, aseity. That would be the best I would ever do in a spelling bee. I just wanted to see what that felt like. It was terrible. Aseity. Aseity means from himself. It's a very important word, and we understand it. We say it all the time. We just don't think of it in these same ways. Aseity means from himself. So God, by nature, is the only one who is from himself. He's the only one who is self-sustaining. He's the only one that has no need. God has no need. There's only one who has true aseity, true from himselfness. 
He is the perfect being. He needs nothing. He doesn't progress in any area. There's no area, no attribute by which he's lacking. He is perfection. He is self-sustaining. Look over in Psalm 51. I'll show you an example. All through the Scriptures, this, this is taught, and it's assumed an understanding of who God is and how God has revealed himself to us. You're saying, why are we talking about the aseity of God when we, when we speak about prioritizing prayer in our daily schedule? It's because it's to say, when we accurately understand who God is, it means that he must rule even our daily schedules. So even the bread we think we can sustain for ourselves, he is the only one who is self-sustaining. We're not sovereign enough, we're not powerful enough to actually produce our own bread. We'll look into that here a little more, but look at Psalm, and we'll look at Psalm 50. I gave you the wrong one. I was testing you. I wasn't testing you, I just told you the wrong chapter. Look at Psalm 50, verse 9 through 12. So Israel makes this mistake on, in many different places. And what they begin to think is that Yahweh, the Lord, needs Israel's sacrifices. They begin to, to act like God needs their worship. They're not acting consistently with the aseity of God. They're not acting consistently with the fact that God is self-sustaining. He needs nothing. The Israelites are acting like they can bribe the Lord. You really do need me. You need this. We do this in our own lives, and perhaps you've done this in your own life, where you say, God, I'll do this if you do that. Treating God as though he needs something, but he does not. He's the, the perfect being, self-sustaining. So look at his response. Look at, look, at, look at what the Lord says. Psalm chapter 50, verse 9. We'll just read 9 through 12. He says, I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your folds, for every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills and all that moves in the field, it's mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world and its fullness are mine. The Lord puts Israel back in their place. They've forgotten that he alone is the self-sustaining being. And all of creation is dependent upon the Lord. Israel dependent upon the Lord. Us, believing in Christ, we are dependent upon the Lord in all of our lives. So here's my question. Here's my question. How do we actually live like we believe this is true? How do we live like we believe this is true, that he actually is the only one who is from himself? Because we, we live with neighbors who have no confession of faith in Christ. We have people that we know, that we work with, that we serve with, that we, that we go and we shop around, and they have no care of the Lord, yet they're able to give themselves daily bread. They seem to go through life just fine without the Lord. And on days when you and I forget to pray and to be grateful to the Lord, we probably just went through our day as normal. We made it through the day. We made it through the week. So how do we live our lives as though we long to practice what we preach? 
to practice what the Word of God teaches us, that He alone is self-sustaining and we're wholly dependent upon Him. It prioritizes itself in our calendars. It prioritizes itself in our schedules. And when we think theologically, when we think about things of God, here's the practical principle. Here it is. We begin with God and we begin with His Word and we work from God's Word back down to our experiences. Our problem tendency that I have, that all of us have, I think, is our instinct is to look at our own experiences first and then to go to God afterwards and assume God must be like us in this way. And we end up with massive theological problems that show itself through practice. Let me give you an example. For raising children. So, the, so again, the, the theological principle is that we begin with who God is first, we go to His Word, and then that becomes the authority over all of our life, even our experiences. And here's an example where when we start bottom up with ourselves going to God instead of God, you, and your Word, and then down to us where we can make a mistake when it comes to prayer. Here's the example. Our children, when they're small, they need us to get them drinks, to get them food, to get them everything. When they go to the restroom, all those things, fill in the blank. And that child becomes a high schooler. Totally capable of getting themselves their own drink. And they come to you and they, and they say, Mom, Dad, can you get me a drink? And maybe they're closer to you than the fridge is. They're closer to the fridge than you are, I mean. And when they say, hey, give me a drink. Can you get me a drink? How do you feel as their, their authority, their parent? If you don't have kids, imagine how you'd feel. What would you be thinking? Say it. Get it yourself. You would be annoyed. Some of you would be. I don't know, not all of you would be. If that's the case, get me a drink. No, I'm just joking. It's not true. Not at all. But you would be annoyed. When we take those experiences and we place them upon God, we can think, God, look at me. We might not say it like this, but through our day we think, you know what, I got this under control. And so we only really go to the Lord personally and passionately in prayer for the things that we know are outside of our control. When people are sick or dying, and we really realize we're hopeless, what the Lord models for us, what Jesus tells us, give us this day our daily bread, what the psalmist models, I rise before dawn and cry for help, and even my eyes are, are awake before the watches of night, what he's saying is, no, 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 we really are so dependent upon the Lord that even the things that he allows us to do, that he's sustaining us to do them. The bread that we think we're getting for ourselves, he's providing it for us. The energy that we're using to go, the work, the jobs, everything that he's, he's doing, he's providing every single second of sustenance for us to do that. And so when we say, Lord, would you help to teach us to prioritize prayer in our daily schedules, we're saying, God, would you give me an accurate understanding of truly how dependent I am upon you? Help me to truly believe in your aseity, that you are from yourself and you alone are from yourself. That's the goodness that we pray. That's what we hope in our lives, that that would prioritize our regular schedules. So practical applications for this. Just like Sunday morning is a Saturday, Saturday night decision. Just like Sunday morning is a Saturday night decision. So if we're, if we're meaning, 
we need to grease the wheels of coming together for corporate worship as a church family on Saturday night. It makes it easier. So set your clothes out. Uh, go to bed at a decent hour. Don't stay up late and watch your favorite football team lose a heartbreaking victory. Right? Just don't do that to yourself like I did last night. And so, so, so Sunday morning is, is a Saturday night decision. If we do those things in advance, if we say, no, I, I need to get a decent hour because I want to wake up and be alert when I gather with my church family, so too is prioritizing prayer in our daily schedule. And the psalmist does this when he says, early in the morning I rise. Jesus tells us to do this when he says, pray for your daily bread. And the psalmist says it on the bottom end and says, even at night, before sneaky people go out and start doing sneaky things, at the end of the night, pray likewise. Set your heart right for Sunday morning to come around again, should the Lord give us a Sunday morning. So, Lord, teach us to prioritize prayer in our daily schedules. Third, teach us to pray like you are our only hope. Teach us to pray. Lord, would you teach us to pray like you are our only hope? Let's look at verse 149 of Psalm 119. He says, Hear my voice according to your steadfast love, that covenant faithfulness, that loyal love of the Lord. According to your justice, give me life. According to your justice, give me life. And Jesus says, in a similar way, in Matthew 6.10, Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth, as it is in heaven. Just as Jesus teaches his disciples how to pray, we likewise see that the psalmist prays the same. Our end times hope is that the Lord will make all things right. The wrongs that you've experienced will be made right. The wicked will give an account Wicked spiritual forces and those in wickedness outside of the covenant faithfulness of the Lord. And the psalmist says, teach us to pray like you are our only hope. He asks for the Lord's justice to be poured out. O Lord, according to your justice, give me life. Revive me. Give me life. I know you're going to give us life eternal. So Jesus says, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Our struggle is not a struggle of belief that it will take place. Our struggle is an issue of timing. And it's okay to pray, Lord, would you bring justice now? I know you're going to bring justice in time, but would you also bring justice now? And he will vindicate, he will work, he will shepherd a person's heart. He will make all things right. He will judge perfectly. All will give an account before the Lord. And so teach us to pray like you're our only hope. Hebrews 4.16 says, Let us draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and, and find grace to help us in times of need. So pray like he's our only hope. John Bunyan, who wrote The Pilgrim's Progress. We've talked about The Pilgrim's Progress two or three times in this, in this psalm series through Psalm 119. I'm not going to talk about it again, but I'm going to talk about another little book that he wrote called Praying in the Spirit, much less popular, really small. So you'd think it'd be more popular. But in that, he deals with a Q&A. And one of the things I so love about many of the Puritans is that they write in such a way that they write for just the congregations of the Lord. They, they write very practically. And so in this little 
book, Praying the Spirit, he answers the first Q&A, which is this. The first question is, I don't know how to pray. It's from a Christian, and it's simple, I don't know how to pray. And John Bunyan writes, and he says to them, listen, you do know how to pray. You know how to pray because you know how to groan. You know how to groan because you know how to look around and see things that are not the way they should be. Simply talk to the Lord about those things. Now, that's my way of summarizing what he said. Here's how he says it, which is far more poetic and beautiful. Listen to this. Praying in the Spirit. Here's what he says. He says that he deals with the question, I don't know how to pray. And here's his answer. Check this out. Poor heart, you complain that you cannot pray? Can you see your misery? Has God showed you that you are by nature under the curse of the fall? If so, do not mistake. I know you bitterly groan. I'm persuaded that, that you can scarcely be found doing anything in your calling. But prayer breaking from your heart. Have not your groans gone up to heaven from every corner of your house? I know it is thus, and, and so also does your own sorrowful heart witness your tears and your forgetfulness of your calling. Is not your heart so full of desires that the things of another world that many times you may even forget of the things of this world. I pray that you read Job 23.12, which says, I have not departed from the commandment of his lips. I have treasured the words of his mouth more than the portions of my food. John Bunyan says to us, to the Christian, he says, you do know how to pray because you know how to recognize that things aren't the way they should be. So speak those to the Lord often. Speak those to the Lord often. Your heart already groans. I've never had to sit with somebody. I've never had somebody ask me, Brent, will you teach me how to be sad? Would you teach me how to have a broken heart? I've never had to teach somebody that. That'd be bizarre and a unique conversation, which I'm totally open to have. But what John Bunyan says is when your heart is broken... When you notice sadness in your life, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Take it on to the Lord. You know your heart will be made right in heaven, so take it on to the Lord right now. Fourthly, teach us to pray like you can deliver us from evil. Teach us to pray not only like you're our only hope, Lord, but teach us to pray like you can deliver us from evil. He says in verse 150 through 152, he says, They draw near who persecute me with evil purpose. They are far from your law, but you are near, O Lord, and all your commandments are true. Long have I known from your testimonies that you have founded them forever. In Matthew 6, 12 through 13, And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors, just as the psalmist mentions his debtors, those that are coming after him with evil purposes that draw near. In verse 13, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. The psalmist prays as Jesus tells his disciples to pray. Recognize in your life the areas of struggle. Very literally, as the psalmist is aiming to walk after the word of the Lord and to follow the teachings of the Lord, he has adversity. And so as he has adversity, as he calls his shot, they draw near me. Look at 151, but you are near. 
Jesus says those people that offended you. Forgive them as the Lord has forgiven you. The psalmist says the same idea. Look at the picture. Watch this. He says, here I am walking in your way. Every psalm, almost every verse in this whole giant psalm does this. Here I am walking in your way. And people that are not walking in your way are chasing after me. And he says here, they draw near. They're getting closer. They're gaining on me. But I know you are nearer. So what he's saying is, even though adversity is coming closer to me, I'm getting closer to you, and I'm so close to you that they're running right after you. So even though they're getting closer, you are closer than they are getting closer or can get. Inadvertently, as people live their life against the word of the Lord, if they persecute those who know the Lord, as they're aiming to walk after the Lord, they're actually running right into a trap. They're running right after the Lord. And that's not going to work out well for them. That's the spoiler alert. And when Jesus says, allow us to forgive our debtors, it's showing that same larger picture. Jesus says it in John 10 when he says, no one can pluck you out of the, out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. He says it like this, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. Listen to this. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. The psalmist prays basically the same thought. Lord, people are getting closer to me that want to do me harm physically. They want to end me. But I draw closer to you and therein I'm safer. It doesn't make sense in the eyes of the world. What about those who do us harm? Let's be serious here. What about those who do us harm? Of them, Jesus teaches us to pray, forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. That's what Jesus tells us. A few weeks ago, or last week or so, Sarah and I were able to host from Texan friends who were stationed in Missouri in our station in Missouri. So they were coming down for a wedding and they stayed at our house for a couple nights. And Sam, uh, my friend, he shared with me a story about a man who depicted and has experienced the beauty of the gospel, the beauty of what Jesus told us to pray, the beauty of what the psalmist prays. He's experienced true gospel forgiveness in a way that makes no sense to this world. His friend's name is, is Chris Carrier. As he told me the story, I thought this is incredible. So I looked up, and sure enough, there the story is in the newspaper from the 90s. And Chris Carrier, on December 20th, 1974, he was a 10-year-old boy. And he got home on the last day of school before Christmas break. He was a fifth grader. And the bus dropped him off at his normal stop. And on his way, the short walk home, a man named David McAllister tricked him into getting into his van. Getting into his van, this is in Coral Gables, Florida. He drove him to the Everglades. See, David had a hatred of Chris's father, who played a part in putting him in prison sometime earlier. 
and he stewed in how to get back at him, at his father. So he picked up young Chris, and he drove him into the Everglades, and he stabbed him with an ice pick, and he shot him in the head and left him for dead. And he burned his body with cigarette to make sure he was dead. Miraculously, six days later, Chris came to it. And a farmer driving by saw him and picked him up. Now, the bullet that went into his head, it went through one temple and out the other temple, and it forever wounded his optic nerve, closing his eye forever. They never caught David McAllister. He was a suspect, but they could never have enough information to catch him, and he would never confess to the crime. Chris went on and became a youth pastor, gave his life to Christ, became a minister. The, the, the case was never solved. 21 years passed. David McAllister at this time had aged, and, and the major who worked the case never quite came to peace with it. And so he looked him up, and he found that, that David McAllister had been now become old, he had become blind, and he was placed in, 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 in a nursing home in North Miami. And so he went, and, and the major went, and he sat down across from him, hoping maybe he could get some closure on this case that was never solved. And sitting there, alone, left alone with no family, he prayed that this man would confess, but he didn't. He partially confessed. He said, I picked him up, but I didn't do any of the crime. I didn't stab him, I didn't shoot him, I didn't do any of that. So the major, still less unsatisfied, went and told Chris, now a man in his young 30s, he told Chris, hey, the man that I think might have done this, he's, he's now old and he's staying right over here in a nursing home, not too far away from you. So Chris got in his car and he drove and he sat across from David McAllister. And even though the man was blind, he heard his voice and he heard his story and he confessed in full what he had done that he had stabbed him with an ice pick, that he had shot him and left him for dead. And Chris chose in that moment, as time had taken a toll on 77-year-old David McAllister, to forgive him. He looked at the man who had taken his life, and he told the man exactly this, from now on there will be nothing like anger or revenge between us, nothing except a new friendship. He visited him frequently over the next three weeks that would become the last three weeks of David McAllister's life. He found out what his favorite meal was, and he brought him food almost every day, baked fish. And he ate with him, and he prayed with him, and on what would become David McAllister's deathbed, he led him to Christ. When he died, none of his family came to pick up his body or to make arrangements. So Chris helped to make the arrangements. His family, his family in Christ. Chris preached his funeral of the man that stabbed him and left him for dead 20 years earlier. That's the transforming power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the true power that is in Christ. That's what we pray. Lord, would you teach us to pray like that? like you really are our only hope in this broken world. Teach us to pray. That's kuf. Not by bread alone, but by every word of God. Next steps. Next steps. Two next steps. 
First, if I were to begin praying right now, is there someone I know the Lord wants me to forgive as he has forgiven me? Is there someone I know that, that I should forgive as the Lord has forgiven me? Just as we've asked, Lord, would you teach us to pray? Is there someone in your life right now, if you knew right now you begin to pray, that person will pop in your mind of somebody that you have, you've, you've held on to seeds of bitterness to that's robbing your joy that is yours in Christ abundantly. And if so, a very simple statement, what will I do about it? What will I do about it? And then secondly, as the psalmist and, and the Lord has, have modeled for us a simple but scripture-soaked prayer, would you be willing to pray for and, and with one or more people around you? Just I'm going to give you like two minutes, not very long. But I feel like it would be unnatural to talk about, Lord, would you teach us how to pray and not give us some time to pray together? And so this may be unnatural for you. You may be thinking, I've got to go to the bathroom right now and get out of here. But I think it would be good just together, just with one or two people around you, even if you have to shift a little bit. If you would just pray together, it could just be one-on-one or, or a small group together. If you would just pray to the Lord right now, just two or three of us, and I'll close us in prayer in about two minutes. So introduce yourself and, and, and just dive in and praying with what the Lord puts on your mind. Teach us to pray, Lord. Let's go ahead and pray before I close this. Oh, our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come in every area of our lives. Your kingdom come. Your will be done in every area of our lives. On earth as we know it is in heaven. We look forward to the day that will come when it will be done perfectly here on earth as well. Lord, would you give us today our daily bread? The bread we've already eaten, we give thanks. The bread we'll eat today, should you provide, we give thanks. For you alone are from yourself. You alone are self-sustaining. Help us to be dependent upon you in every area of our life. Help us to realize that and to be ever grateful let us to be known as the people who are ever grateful. Would you forgive us of our debts as we also forgive our debtors? Lord, we know for each of us that means a different thing, a different person, and a different pain. But we do believe you are our only hope for that to take place. And we know you can, and we know you're good. We know you're faithful. And we know in Christ we are forgiven. So lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours, Lord, is the kingdom and the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen.